Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host, Dr. Octavia Bright. How are you, Octavia? <laughs> I'm a doctor. <laughs> That's Good. how I am. I've heard, yeah. Stop it, I'm embarrassed. Um, I'm very well. I was actually just thinking what I was going to say when you asked me how I was, and my answer is I'm very well because I have a really warm coat, and it just makes everything better when it's cold. Yeah, Eddie always makes fun of me for how much I love my puffy giant coat, but I really love it. Yeah. The like enveloped in the warm blanket of the coat is a is a wonderful feeling. Yeah, it is. And when it's sunny and beautiful outside like it is today and you're in a warm coat, it's just everything's good. It's good. So I I'm really agree. well. <laughs> I'm well, I'm temperate, it's nice. How are you? Also well and temperate. Not a doctor. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> and I'm really excited for today's show, which is all about returning. So not returning books to the library. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I ad-libbed that, actually. I loved um, it. Instead, we're asking, why do authors from William Faulkner to John Updike and Hilary Mantel to Margaret Atwood return to the same characters and places again and again? What can a trilogy do that a solo book can't? And why do we get so excited and also a little bit nervous when these returns happen? To help us answer these questions, today we have an incredibly special guest, incredibly special because she's one of my favorite authors, Elizabeth Strout. Her latest book, Olive Again, is a return to the complicated character of Olive Kittredge and her community in Crosby, Maine. Octavia, do you want to introduce Elizabeth a little bit more for our listeners? Sure, Carrie. Um, Elizabeth Strout, in case you don't know her, is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Olive Kittredge, as well as The Burgess Boys, Abide With Me, Amy and Isabel, My Name is Lucy Barton, and Anything is Possible. She has also been a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award and the Orange Prize and was longlisted for the Booker Prize. She lives in New York City and Portland, Maine. Um, And yeah, she's a fantastic writer. So today you'll hear our interview with Elizabeth. We'll talk more generally about the theme of returning in literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So join us for the next hour when it will all be coming back to me now. Oh my God, Carrie <laughs> Plitt. I, g- give me that shoehorn. I'm taking it off you. <laughs> I actually wrote that in as a placeholder and forgot about it. Uh, <laughs> and meant to do something better. But fine. And how do you feel about yourself right now? I feel like Celine Dion is someone we should all be thinking about and so I have no regrets maybe we should return to Celine Dion hey no no Elizabeth Strout, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction today. It's lovely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Could you set it up for us, please? Yes, I'm going to read from the chapter called Motherless Child, just the first couple of pages. They were late. Olive Kittredge hated people who were late. A little after lunchtime, they had said, and Olive had the lunch things out, peanut butter and jelly for the two oldest kids, and tuna fish sandwiches for her son and his wife, Anne. About the little ones, she had no idea. The baby must not eat anything solid yet, only being six weeks old. Little Henry was over two, but what did two-year-olds eat? Olive couldn't remember what Christopher ate when he was that age. She walked into the living room, looking at everything through the eyes of her son. He would have to realize as soon as he walked in. The phone rang, and Olive moved quickly back to the kitchen to answer it. Christopher said, "'Okay, Mom, we're just leaving Portland. We had to stop for lunch.' "'Lunch?' said Olive. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. The late April sun was a milky sun seen through the window over the bay, which shone with a steely lightness. No whitecaps today. 
We had to get something for the kids to eat, so we'll be there soon. Portland was an hour away. Olive said, okay then, will you still be needing supper? Supper? asked Christopher, as though she had proposed they take a shuttle to the moon. Sure, I guess so. In the background, Olive heard a scream. Christopher said, Annabelle, shut up. Stop it right now, Annabelle. I'm counting to three. Mom, I'll have to call you back. And the phone went dead. Oh, Godfrey, Olive murmured, sitting down at the kitchen table. She had still not taken the pictures from the wall, yet the place looked remarkably different, as though, as was the case, she would be moving out of it soon. She did not think of herself as a person who had knickknacks, but there was a box of stuff in the back corner of the kitchen, and as she glanced into the living room from where she sat, that room seemed to her to be even more guilty. There was only the furniture and the two paintings on the wall. The books were gone. She had given them to the library a week ago, and the lamps, except for one, were packed into a box as well. The phone rang again. Sorry about that, said her son. Are you supposed to be talking on a cell phone and driving, Olive asked. I'm not driving. Anne's driving. Anyway, we'll be there when we get there. All right, then, Olive said. She added, I'll be awful glad to see you. Me too, said her son. Me too. Great. Thank you so much. I think that's an excellent introduction to Olive as well. I love some of the words she says, like when she goes, oh, Godfrey. Right. You know, it's, Godfrey it's, Mighty is Olive. <laughs> right. It's, it's so Olive. And I guess I wanted to start by asking the obvious question. This book is called Olive Again. It's a sequel of sorts to Olive Kittredge, right. your earlier book. Why did you want to return to Olive and to Crosby, Maine? Well, I, I had no intention of doing so ever. Um, never crossed my mind that I would write Olive again. And um, a few years ago, I was sitting in a city in Norway, and I just, I was checking my email, and she just showed up. She simply showed up. I could see her very vividly and very immediately, and she was nosing her way through the parking lot at the marina, and I saw her get out of the car, and she had a cane now, and there she was, just as, as vivid as she'd ever been, and I realized, okay, I'm going to have to get this down. So I did. There that she was. sounds very olive. Yeah, <laughs> so, it, it, you're right. It was very up. olive. She just showed up. And that was that. It was lovely to hear you reading and reading that that story about, you know, that, well, I say story, that chapter, but yeah. it's really focusing in on the mother-son right. relationship. And there's a lot about olive as a, as a character in both of the books that's to do with motherhood and the complexity of it and the ambivalence of it, right? Right. And I wonder if you, as the writer of Olive, do you have like a a maternal relationship with her or is she kind of maternal to you or does it not fit into that dynamic at all? That's interesting. She's certainly not maternal to me. Um, I that I, Now that I'm thinking, I've never thought about that before, but I suppose in a particular kind of way, I feel a maternal feeling for her as I do all my characters. So it's not just Olive that I would feel that way for, but I mean or about but I suppose there is a, a spot of that feeling toward all my characters actually now that you mention it. it's very interesting this isn't the first time you've returned to characters or places in fact a lot of your books feature Shirley Falls um right. it's been really fun in all of again to right. read some of the characters from earlier novels and I wonder do you think we were talking about this because on the show today, we're going to be talking sort of more generally about authors who come back to characters and places. And we're thinking about why why do writers do this and why do readers do that this? And one of the things we settled upon was comfort. Um, and I wonder if that was 
a driving force behind wanting to return to places and people for you? You know, I think that it's not just comfort. There's, I think my characters become so real to me that they remain in my head as real and they don't go away, I guess is what I'm saying. And and so they're, they're just kind of always there. And therefore, when I find a way for them to walk back on the stage, I'm so excited because they just seem to me to be real people and they're waiting sort of for, hello, another chance. And you've said in other interviews that you love them and I suppose I do. that's related to the yeah. motherhood thing right. as well right and I do love them yeah I do and I don't judge them you know which is which is the most wonderful part for me about being a writer is that when I go to the page I, I just suspend judgment yeah your writing's incredibly compassionate which I think is one of the great pleasures in reading it as well this like feeling that someone might be that compassionate towards you and all your own flaws. Right. You know what I right. mean? Right, exactly. I suppose so, right. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And Olive's a kind of character who, obviously she embodies a lot of judgments, right? Mm, but then totally. you right. allow us behind the veil right. of that. Right, exactly. And I always remember um, there was a moment when I was writing Olive, the first Olive Kittredge, and I, and I remember exactly where I was standing in this cottage in Provincetown where I was writing it and I was looking out the window and I had worked all day and, and I, and it was night. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, she's just too badly behaved. And, and then I remember telling myself, no, no, you let her go. Let her be Olive. Just do not pull her in. Let her be Olive. And it was a very, it was a moment I obviously really remembered because for all of my writing, it just kind of, you know, allowed myself to realize, no, just let them be who they are. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, personally is I'm, I'm from New England as well. And as someone who's left New England, I have really realized not just what goes unsaid, but how conflict diverse people in New England are and how much conflict goes on in our minds. That's right. And I wonder if, first of all, if that's something you've noticed, but also... Mm. I've I've noticed I've noticed that uh-huh. happens a lot in your Keep fiction going. as well uh-huh. that people are having right. these conflicts right. play out in their minds and right. I, and I wonder when you think about writing how how do you want to write that and what right. do you want to convey right it's so that's so interesting yes I I, I feel that I know what you're talking about <laughs> and um it it's so interesting because I've always I've always been interested in the interior life that people have and how much they reveal that and how much they don't and how much they think they do and how much they are actually not or actually are. But anyway, everybody has an interior life and then they bump up against the real world. And it's that interface that's always been so interesting to me to to try and get into those crevices, those dark crevices of a person's mind where nobody ever really goes and maybe not even the person himself or herself. And yet... It's there. It's always there. And, and yes, New England is, you know, to speak generally, but I will, there is a culture there that's one of not saying what they're thinking all the time, as opposed to other cultures that are more free with their expressions of feelings. So that makes for a certain kind of compression in the work. It feels like that relates to the location as well, because Crosby, Maine is this small community and Shirley Falls is another quite small community. And when 
it feels like when something's set in those confines, you have a, a kind of brilliant tool for slowly revealing more right. and more. Yeah. Like you open the doors to people's apartments and right. houses and then you see things, That's exactly right? it. It's did so, you have fun with that? Yes, I did because because honestly, I have always found people to be the most interesting thing in the world ever since I was like a very small child. There really weren't that many people around when I was a kid. So <laughs> I'm sorry, but to see a person was so exciting. <laughs> you know, kind of literally, actually. So, I mean, when, you know, when we went into town, you know, and I would sit in the car with my mother while my father went around for business and, you know, we would see people and my mother would comment on, you know, whoever was walking down the street and say, oh, that woman. She looks like she's not very happy to get home. And I would be so interested. And I would say, well, how do you know? How do you know? And she'd say, well, look at her coat. You know, the hem, hem hasn't been fixed for years or something like that. And I would just be so interested. And I would want to follow these people home. And I would want to see what their bathrooms look like. And I mean, I've just always been so interested in people. So what was your question? Why? <laughs> it, it wasn't really. It was more just no. a comment about yeah. like the small town being this right. kind of wonderful place. But exactly. So so opening the door and finding, oh, here's a, an apartment and here's a young girl living there and here's her mother smoking her cigarette and what is going on? It's just so it's just so interesting for me. You write in a very succinct way. And I think you do also have a way of picking out those details that tell you something right. about someone. I wonder when you're writing, is that always immediately clear to you what that thing is going to be? Or is it something it takes you a while to arrive at? Like, will there be lots of ways that you describe people and then sort of cut it down? Or... I don't think quite so much anymore. I think that I'm probably a little bit faster at getting to the core of a person. I mean, like somebody will, because of many years of doing this, and, you know, so a character will show up, and I will know rather soon whether I can work with them or not, or want to work with them or not. And if I don't, then that's that. So rather early on, I understand, oh, this is a person that I want to be with, and I want to, you know, find out about. But I still do an amazing amount of rewriting. I really do. I'm interested in the characters that you turn away. <laughs> Is yeah. that like, because you don't, they're not people that you would want to spend the time That's with. That's right. They're just not, for whatever reason, they're just not that interesting to me. And even though I honestly do believe that everybody's interesting, if you get, you know, underneath whatever they have that's protecting them from the world... There are nevertheless characters that I just, they're not people that I want to be with on the page. That makes sense. Yeah. And actually one of the things that I was pleased to see showing up in Olive again is the idea that you can learn to love someone who's very, very different from you. Yeah. With the character of Betty. Right. Um, who is a, a nurse who brings in, well, one of the one of the elements in the book that brings Trump into the equation, actually. Right. exactly. Which was, I thought, an interesting choice. And, and I know we both mm -hmm. wanted to ask you about, mm -hmm. about bringing that specter into right. Olive's right. world, you know? Right. But the thing about Betty is that Olive manages to love her. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's amazing. And that it made story me feel was really that, emotional. That, yeah. that story, the last line of that story when it came to me, because um, I had gone through many drafts and then and without that last line, and then I realized oh, there, there's the story in that last line. And I brought Trump in. I mean, the word Trump is not in the book because, you know, I don't want it in the book. But I brought the orange-haired man and the bumper stick in because people live in a time and place in history and it would be um 
unrealistic or something. It would it would go against what I'm trying to do to not place them in their time and their place in history. And this book goes through more than a decade of her life. And at that point, you know, this is who, this is what's happening in the country. And so it seemed like I needed to mention that and bring that in in a way that would be true. So have you had characters who've surprised you in ways that you were like, oh God? Yeah, I mean, they most of my characters surprise me because I'll only start out with a you know with an image of them and then sort of watch what they do or go with them and then they'll end up surprising me. I mean, I had no idea that Kaylee Callahan was going to take her shirt off for that man. I mean, that was like wow. Neither did I reading it? I it was know. it's a that real was moment. Like really interesting. And believable, I thought. I thought actually, this is believable. Her father's died. She's going to do this, and and that was a surprise. And so. that is, I wouldn't say risky, but I I think that story is doing something that I could see people getting really angry about on mm-hmm. Twitter. You know, mm-hmm. because it's she's she's taking her shirt off for this much older man right. is mentally deteriorating in some way we don't we're right. not really sure and is also her employer and is and is also her employer so right. to, to, like if you strip away the story the facts of it could be quite upsetting to some people right. and i wonder if you considered that when you wrote it if if you felt there was any sort of risk involved um i think well there's always risk involved but i think again um you know i i'm i was interested in the characters I was interested in Kaylee herself and the truthfulness of what she would be feeling and going through and um and what Phil Ringrose was apparently going through which we find out later and um so it's it's the story itself and the nuances of the story that I'm trying to get down the thing about that is also, it seems like it's getting to the heart of what an honest interaction is, right? Like yeah. these right. things that happen in our That's lives right. that don't make much sense to That's us. That's right, exactly. Yeah, but yeah. sometimes they can be very honest. Right, you're absolutely right. Um, and I was. It did seem an honest interaction. Yeah, I felt that reading yeah. it. And it, yeah. it did make me uncomfortable yeah. as well. You know, right. it's a well, very sure. like, right. it right. felt like quite an edgy thing, right. but honest too. Yeah. Um, and, and it made me think about I've got it here, here we go. In the first chapter, Jack asks himself, how does one live an honest oh, yeah. life? And it, it's like a, a phrase that comes up again and again in my mind reading your writing, because right. it feels like it's right. a lot grappling right. with that question. It is, It's an, because that is an interesting question. Like when I wrote that, I remember thinking, yeah, that's actually a very interesting question, Jack, good for you, you know? <laughs> I, I, and I could think, and I could sort of see him thinking, and he'd thought it before, but now he was actually really thinking. And I thought, yeah. Do you think it's, how does one live in honest? Yeah, life? I mean, do you think it's do you think it's possible? I think that one can. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's you know there are degrees of honest lives, and and one can live a fairly honest life, as opposed to quite a dishonest life. Just thinking, as we've been asking you all of these questions, I wonder if you like being interviewed about your books. Not not because you don't seem to be enjoying it now, but. Because the way you seem to write is so, because it's so based on characters. Right. And the way that authors so often get interviewed about their books is so often about like themes and symbols right. and things written into it. To me, it seems like your writing process is like those things come out of the That's process. That's right. They do. And it's not that... until later that I look back yeah. and realize, oh, 
<laughs> and there's the thing. <laughs> and do you like, do you enjoy people having interpretations of the themes in your book? Like, are you interested in that? Do you? Want I am to talk interested. About in, it? I mean, I am interested because I, you know, I I've had a theory for many many years that every book is a different book to each reader, mm. and I think I would hope that that would be especially true for my books because I think that I try and leave enough space, enough enough porousness in the text that people can bring their own experiences to the book and therefore it will become even more their book than somebody who is reading it as well and who will have that similar experience in their own way. So I, I'm, I am interested in what people bring you know, to my work and or see in my work, and because has, you know, I'm just putting it out there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the way you deal with time in the books as well, like you said, like that's one of the ways that that porousness works its yeah. way in because yeah. you're n you're never with one perspective for very right. long. So right. it's kind of, I can imagine coming back to these books at a different stage in my life and relating. Right to a different character. Or, yeah. Right, and that's always so interesting when I reread a book, not one of my own, but I mean, which I don't, but when I reread a book that I have liked at a different point in my life, I'm always so struck with what a different book it is. It's fascinating. And that's just because I'm reading it in a different way. So interesting. Yeah, it, so, it really is. Yeah. The, the way that we read through a veil of ourselves. Right, right. Have you ever had an experience where you're talking about a book that you've loved reading and someone else has been like, yeah, that book was all about X and you're like, no, yes. not for me. It was yes. about something completely yes. else. Yes, I, re I remember when I was quite young, oh, I was really upset with somebody because, you know, they didn't like a book that I had liked very much. Can oh, we ask what the book was? The book was A Farewell to Arms. Oh, my goodness, that book is... And yeah. um, and she just said that it wasn't, you know, it was the women, the woman was not well done. And she said that sort of stuff. And I, I just remember thinking, really privately wow i'm not sure we can still be friends <laughs> that's how much that's how deeply affected i was by that conversation and i wanted to ask you a little bit about structure mm -hmm. because yeah, yeah. um you know you can read these chapters in this book as stories and right. um the way that people right. talk about both all right. of kittredge in this book are sometimes as story collections right. sometimes as novels um and I, to me, I think to write things that can stand alone, um, you have right. to have a really solid grasp of structure and you do have to have a beginning and you do have to have right. an end. Right. And when you're thinking about writing these stories, do you plot it out? Does that structure come to you? Do you move around things that happen so that it right. has that kind of arc? I, um, for years and years, I, uh, years ago I learned when I only had a small amount of time every day to work, I learned to write in scenes. And so I don't write anything from beginning to end because years ago I just realized it was a waste of my time. It would be wooden. So I write in scenes. And I've always, like I said, I've just done that for years. And so I will um, take whatever emotion that I'm feeling at that time and push it to an extreme and transpose it into a character and make a scene from it and therefore I think of it as hopefully having a heartbeat if it doesn't have a heartbeat it goes on the floor but if it has a heartbeat it stays and then after a while these scenes will connect and in that way a story develops 
and plot develops and I don't have to think about plot. I love the idea of a heartbeat. Yeah. Because it is quite rhythmic, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so interesting, right? Yeah, the way that the the narrative peaks and troughs come through mm-hmm. that text. Mm-hmm. And the moments you get as a reader, of, especially as a reader of your work, where you get little peaks where you recognize right. a character from right. a different moment. Right. It's also listening to you sounds like a very cinematic process for you. Do you find, is it very visual? It is visual. Um, and it's interesting because I'm not a person very well schooled in cinema at all. I mean, we never had a TV growing up and I just never, I never learned that way of looking at things and even with movies I notice I just have never it's just something that I'm not familiar with in any deep way and yet I do see a thing I, I very much see things when I'm writing them yeah I see exactly the staircase that Kaylee's standing on and the backpack and I, I mean I even can feel it and I know exactly what that light switch sounds like you know, right outside the door. When you were saying about your childhood not having TV around and stuff, were you mm-hmm. a big reader? I was, absolutely. There was nothing else to do. Um, and I, I read, I don't remember reading children's books. I don't remember there being any children's books around. But I read, there was a um, the complete works of Hemingway that somebody had sold to my grandfather, traveling salesman had sold my grandfather. So I went through those. And I remember reading Updike's Pigeon Feathers at a very young age, because it was just there. And that was really interesting. I always remember that because I remember thinking, you know, I understood that I didn't understand it. But I understood that, oh, being a kid is not where it's happening. (laughs) 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 I do remember, you know, (laughs) thinking, ah, wow, what's, what's this all about? In the very last chapter on the last page of the book, you wrote Olive typing. Yeah. I do not have a clue who I have been. Truthfully, I do not understand a thing. We've been through this journey with Olive. Yeah. And then we get her writing that. And my response to that was to find that weirdly both incredibly hopeful and incredibly depressing. And I wonder how you, as the person writing it, you know, thinking this might be the last time that I really write about Olive. What, what, what were you finding in that moment? You know, I, it's funny because I, that was one of the surprises of, of that story. And there were many surprises, like Isabel's mother talking to her and, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. But anyway, but that last final scene was a surprise, but but I think, um, well, I know that what I was trying to do was to to be as truthful as I could be, which is what I'm always trying to do, and and make sure that Olive was being a being Olive and being Olive who was trying to be truthful. And so, at it seemed to me that at that point in her life, at that very moment in her life, as she was contemplating things, that she would realize, and then. You know, there's a little bit of a motif throughout the stories because, you know, there's even Jack thinks and and Olive, even in Motherless Child, realizes she'd lived her life as though blind. So, you know, there was that motif that had been working its way through. And I thought this will be what she writes now. She will, you know, in her Olive way, she's definitive. She's not going to be, you know, 
maybe I don't understand some things, but maybe I understand. You know, that's not all of. She's just going to say, I do not understand a thing. And it's funny as the reader because, you know, I felt anyway, like I know Olive very well. Mm -hmm. And she's a very singular character and a very singular person. And I would recognize her anywhere with her walk and her, you know, broad shoulders and all of this. Um, So it's an interesting tension, isn't it, when you read that? And you think, yeah. Olive, you don't know who you are, but we right. know who you are, I babe. Know. But I also, know. we don't know who she is. But, then, that's, but that's, <laughs> that's exactly that was it. what was. But it, that's what's so weird. Yeah. That's and and that's what I'm actually at this point in my life. I'm interested in that sense of how much do we know ourselves and do we know other people? Yeah, and also, does the self manifest in relation to others? Yeah. Or is it what's happening right. privately inside? Exactly, or a combination. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just interesting yeah. to and me. And maybe the truest realization we can have is that we know nothing. That we know nothing, exactly. I, I just thought that was yeah. so interesting that at yeah. the very end of her exactly. life, that was actually that's right. the profound realization right. of the book. Right, how, that's how it came to me. It's a liberating yeah. thought, I think, actually, to realize I that. I think it's kind of liberating. yeah. To realize it's oh, quite optimistic actually okay. I, I, well I think it's not unoptimistic that's a diplomatic <laughs> that answer the, is that the right word <laughs> unoptimistic yeah you know I mean but yeah but it's it's freeing I think as well all right Elizabeth Strout <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to have thank you, you on thank, thank you, you so, so much. much it's been wonderful This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Dr. Octavia Bright. Stop it. <laughs> what? I thought you wanted me to say it. I feel like you're taunting me. I am. <laughs> but I'm very happy to be back here with you after talking to Elizabeth Strout about returning. Um, so what do we mean by returning? Today we're going to talk about books in which authors return to a character or a place or something that they've explored before in their fiction and why authors do that and why we as readers seem to love it so much. So let's start by just talking about that question. Why do we love it so much? Because we really do. We buy those books. When it was announced that Elizabeth Strout had written Olive again, I was incredibly excited. Yeah, same. I think I think it's because you, you know, you love a book, you love a character. And if you've really loved a story, you don't want it to end or when it ends you feel a bit bereft and so the chance to go back there can be really exciting but also sometimes it's about returning to the place that you were at when you read the first book so like the Philip Pullman trilogy that has now extended and he's writing a new trilogy that's an extension of the world every time I read any of his books I'm 11 again which is the age I was when I read the first one so it doesn't matter that the worlds are continuing to expand and the characters are continuing to age there's something about that specific literary universe that is linked to my youth when I read it so that's like one version and then there's an I think sometimes it's it's also very comforting isn't it you know like I know my dad would always read the new James Bond books that were being written by other authors obviously because Fleming was dead because he just found that was like a familiar I mean very fucking questionable character to go back to but yeah there was something familiar and comforting I guess in it yeah totally I think I think comfort is the right word and and there's something nostalgic about it yeah definitely I think there's something also magical about this character this place has come has sprung from the mind of this author and it seems almost more magical when they can return to this place and they're the only one who can 
extend our relationship with those places and characters. And so I think that's what's so exciting about it is like only Margaret Atwood can take us back to the world of The Handmaid's Tale and show us how things have gone for those characters. And that's um, there's something that feels very privileged about that as as well as comforting. I do like it. I would also say the flip side of that is I always get really nervous about authors returning to characters or books. First of all, because I think, you know, as I do work in publishing and I know that much like doing a sequel for a movie, you can make money out, out of these things and you're much more guaranteed to make money. Right. And I think there's a lot of pressure on authors and writers in general to return to characters who are very popular with people. Right, but maybe the cynicism works both ways because there's also, as the consumer, the reader, there's like a try-before-you-buy thing. And so if you're like, like I'm saving up the Margaret Atwood because I'm pretty certain I'm going to enjoy it or at least get something from it because The Handmaid's Tale was an important book for me when I was younger. And I'm saving up to read at Christmas and I have no doubt about reading it whereas there are some books by authors I've never read before that I maybe I'm more trepidatious because I'm like well maybe I'm gonna like it maybe I'm not you know this period of time where I want to just get loads from what I'm reading there's some comfort in knowing that I know the world already and it will be an exciting thing to return to yeah no that's true although I there's there's a certain kind of laziness about that that I don't like in oh, myself girl. <laughs> but I think it's true about what like why can't we try new things well, I don't we know. do but I think the thing is you well, at least the kind of reading that I'm doing, I'm trying new things way more than I'm returning to things that are comfortable. So I don't see it as lazy at all. I see it as like a tiny portion of what I'm doing, which is always kind of broadening and challenging just because of the way that I read and the work I do and all of that. Good repost. Yeah, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I still think it's a little lazy. I also think... Um, <laughs> She's cracking the whip, guys, seriously. <laughs> I also think it's it, you're really setting yourself up for potential disappointment, right? Because like we were talking about with Elizabeth, authors change over their lives as much as characters in books do. And I think an author returning to a place or a character... You know, they're not necessarily going to write as good a book as they did before. And, you know, for, for me, I think being really excited about something also carries with it that weight of like, what if this isn't what I expected? Or what if the thing that I thought I loved when I was much younger doesn't hold up? Even if it's a really good book anyway. Interesting. Difference between optimist and pessimist. But I think I'm an optimist. <laughs> do you, do you no. disagree? Yeah. <laughs> You're a pragmatist. Okay. Which is different. Well, I feel like my pessimism is actually very optimistic. <laughs> Please go on. <laughs> well, I think if I'm realistic about things, then I'm never fully disappointed. Yeah. I think that's fair. And as an optimist who is constantly disappointed. <laughs> but the thing is, I bounce back very fast yeah. because I'm back to hoping that it's going to be great. So I, it's funny to hear you talk like that about your feeling towards sequels because I'm just always optimistic about them. And sometimes they have really let me down, but I kind of, I move on quite fast from that feeling. So I'd rather have the feeling of optimism of like, oh my God, I can't wait to go back to Lyra's world um, and see what's happened to you know, whoever it is that I've missed or do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Whereas my response to the first book in the Book of Just tr trilogy was like, maybe sometimes authors should just leave worlds alone. Really? You know, it's that, that thing where J.K. Rowling keeps like making announcements about oh, how pass. people pooped mm. in the Wizarding World. And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. please just stop. But like, that is that's stop like, this expansion. That's different. 
because that's that's just like tweeting about guys. But it's also know? tied up with her writing these Fantastic Beasts yeah. movies, which should not exist. No, and that does feel like that feels like the pursuit of cold hard cash, doesn't it? Yeah, unfortunately. Although I I do also feel authors should be able to do whatever they want. But totally. But I worry that returning to really popular places and and characters is sometimes them bending to the will of an industry yeah. yeah 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 i think that's totally fair but let's talk about some <laughs> some sequels no, please and returns lazy that again. we really love no i was saying lazy like we're i know all I'm, lazy. I'm teasing you. we're all I'm lazy you. we are all lazy but laziness can be fruitful yeah interestingly yes mm-hmm. i <laughs> you really don't agree I, I don't i don't know what that means anyway um well i was of course thinking of elena ferrante who wrote the Neapolitan novels, four books about the these two friends, and we really follow them through their lives and makes a wonderful case for the way that fiction can show a whole life. Yeah, and that makes it makes sense that you would want to continue reading as you grow with the characters as well. And, you know, sometimes you get that exciting feeling of being the same age as the character when you start reading. So their life events as the sequels continue match yours and you have a kind of friendship with them. And other times they're a bit ahead of you. So you're looking to them as kind of elders, I guess. I don't know if that's how you relate to characters in books, but I certainly do. The other thing that you get is the chance to deepen the understanding of a character and I think that's pretty cool and that's definitely what I felt with Elizabeth Strout's books that Olive again we get an even deeper look into her character because we see her fall in love again and we see her grapple with loss again and we see her grapple with her own mortality and that just allows you to deepen your sense of of a person right totally and I love this idea that there are certain characters that she wants to work with over and over again and I'm, I'm sure that must be true of these authors who return to characters again and again, like Irvin Welsh, can't stop writing about the characters in Train Spotting. I'm sure he has this sort of magnetic attraction to them, and we do as readers as well. Yeah, totally. I was I've also- never, I haven't ever read the sequ- the, I mean, the like porno and stuff. Have you? I haven't read any of those books. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> what an admission. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting when we interviewed Ben Lerner, which will be an interview that plays out in December. He said he referred to his first three novels as a trilogy. And I think that's a different way of thinking of returns because those aren't books that necessarily are telling the same story in three parts, but they're books that are exploring kind of the same character, but also the same ideas and the same way of writing about a life. And I wonder if that's a way of thinking about returning as well. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, what Ben Lerner is talking about is more specific than this, but then you have writers like Philip Roth who returns to the same um they're never the same characters but it's definitely the same ideas again and again and the same dynamics are what draw him to writing and there's always that joke you read one Philip Roth book you read them all but actually there's a kinder way of looking at that and uh it was actually when I spoke to Zadie Smith that that sort of changed my thinking around this when she said um she found it frustrating when people point out that as a writer you're returning to the same themes and she sort of said what's wrong with that as you grow and you change and you understand things with greater depth, why would it not be interesting to go back to the same, you know, the same core issue again and again and again? And in other art forms, that's kind of allowed, you know, like a, a musician is allowed to have a style that is maybe based around a number of chords that they use in everything, or an artist returns to the same scene again and again, like Monet painting those bloody water lilies, you know, <laughs> endlessly. Like, why should, why do we demand such newness from writers within their own? writing career why shouldn't we be supportive of them returning to the same thing yeah Yeah. I like that I like that idea 
And I'm always fascinated by writers who return to the same imaginary landscape that they've created. I love, um, like Faulkner famously wrote about the same county in the Faulkner. South. I know, <laughs> obviously. But he, he wrote, he writes about the same county in, in the South over and over and over that he's created. He comes back to the same characters. There are characters from his other novels that make appearances. And, and I don't know, there's something incredibly exciting to me about this fictional world that exists in someone's head that when we read a new book of theirs, we'll find out something more about the world, but from a different point of view or angle. I mean, I've talked about how much I don't like Thomas Hardy, but he did a similar thing with Wessex, um, this county in England that he created. And Elizabeth Stroud, of course, does that too. And I think people do it, um, writers who are writing more in the genre space, although, of course, we don't believe in the difference between genre fiction and literary fiction necessarily on this show. But that's a really wonderful way that authors have explored like fantasy worlds. And even in detective fiction, I was thinking about um, Tana French, who's writing these Dublin Murder Squad books where every book focuses on a different detective in the Murder Squad, but characters who you've met before come into the books. And every time you read the book, you feel like you're adding to this rich understanding of a particular world. Totally, and it just makes it more real and you feel like you could actually visit one day. Yeah, I think it's great. I was also thinking about Updike, obviously, the rabbit yeah. books. Well, you can't have this discussion without, without talking about Updike. Updike, can you? Yeah, again, that that's an experience of aging with a character and because he writes so clearly the persona of rabbit, you you know him and it it's fun when you get onto the next book kind of almost predicting how you think he's going to be because you're like well I know rabbit he's going to do this and then he doesn't or you know what I mean it's it allows you to personalize the experience even more I think totally yeah let's talk about our favorite books that are returns okay well I'm mine is it's slightly stretching the idea of returning but I think it's fair um everything under by Daisy Johnson which is a return to a Greek myth rather than a rewrite of it because um the kind of rules of the myth I'm not going to say which one it is because it's a massive spoiler I mean it's everywhere but I don't want to contribute to that the myth underpins how some of the story unfolds but Johnson's real skill is that it's not the only thing that the book is doing so she's kind of layering her own story on top of this very famous narrative um, and so her story is about a mother and a daughter who are reunited after many years apart the mother now has dementia through the haze and chaos of her illness they tried to piece together their past which was spent living in a very marginal way on a canal boat just outside of Oxford and it's about language it's about identity it's about love and fate and loss it's very much about returning um, returning to origin stories returning to the maternal kind of bond and narrative and then also returning to this Greek myth and it, it's got lo lots of drama without running away from its from itself or with itself, actually. But yeah, many, many returns. Many, yeah. many happy returns. Many returns. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something we didn't really talk about, right, is um, when authors use stories that already exist in the culture to return to in their novels. And that's a whole rich vein of of novels. And, and I think a really creative space when you have those kinds of parameters and readers already have an idea in their mind of what the story is. You can really play around with that and in really interesting ways. I mean, famously, The Wide Sargasso Sea, um, the movie Clueless. Zadie Smith did it with On Beauty, which yeah. is after E.M. Forrester. So I love books like that, actually. I'm, I'm always interested when authors want to take a story that's really well-known in our culture and make it their own. Yeah, and it's fun as a reader because you uh, you you feel like you're in on the on the joke, as it were, from the beginning. But then a 
a skillful author who's engaging with that is going to be surprising you as well. Yeah, and it's a way of changing the cultural narrative and exactly. re-examining stories and, and finding the characters who would have been overlooked. Right, and maybe reflecting on the core of the story in a newer in a newer way or in a way that's politically inflected. Totally. Yeah. Well, um, and, and actually, interestingly, I chose a book that was also a return to an old story. Um, it's not my favorite return per se, but I've talked a lot of about my favorite authors like Ferrante and Faulkner all the time. So I'm not going to re-tread that ground. I'm not going to return to that ground. Oh, girl, there she goes. <laughs> Somebody stop her. <laughs> Once I'm wound up, you can't stop me. I'm sorry. But I did want to recommend a book I probably had the most fun reading in the past few years, which was Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld. Did you did you read that? I didn't read it. Yeah, but I don't it know. I don't. Fun. Well, I don't know if you'd like it. Maybe you shouldn't read it. But <laughs> um, it's an update of Pride and Prejudice. It's actually, I think, a series that a publisher are doing of different authors rewriting Jane Austen. I have not read any of the other series, and I kind of don't care to. I'm not interested in. I'm not a completist in that way. But I did really enjoy reading this. Curtis Sittenfeld is so. She's just so good on people. She's great at relationships. She's great at plotting. Every single one of her books, you feel like she has this depth of psychological insight, but you keep turning the pages like a maniac. Um, that's happened to me every single one of her books I've read. And she's set Pride and Prejudice in contemporary Cincinnati, where she's from. So it feels like a, a very personal book, or it felt like that reading it, at least. I loved seeing the different ways she translates Austin's plot. Some of them worked better than others, but it was just a joy to sort of be like, well, what's Lydia going to be like, you know? Um, and, and What then, shoes is she going to wear? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where does she show up? All that stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also the romance at the center of the plot is genuinely thrilling and like really sexy. And I thought she was so smart. She has Elizabeth and Darcy have like really hot, angry hookup sex with each other very early on in the book, which Amazing. feels so right for these characters and, and for the update of this book. And I and I just really enjoyed reading it. So if you want a really fun, quick, like entertaining read, I'd, I'd recommend it. It sounds like a fun, quick, entertaining read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Just stick the knife in I Octavia. Just, I just, Jane Austen, I'm I know, I know, I know, I know. You know? I'm Carrie Plitt. This is Literary Friction. I'm back here with Octavia Bright and also Elizabeth Strout to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start, please? I would love to. Um, this month, I'm going to recommend a book that's published actually pretty much right now by Canon Gate called Be My Guest by Priya Basil. And its subtitle is Reflections on Food, Community and the Meaning of Generosity. And it is a really beautiful little book, um, very elegant meditation on food and dependency and family and race, memory, maternity or lack thereof, like all the different choices that a person might make. And she looks at the oxymoron of the term hospitality industry and how capitalism has kind of stolen some of the heart of what it means to be hospitable. And it's become this thing that we you know we're dependent on hospitality throughout our entire lives but now it's been monetized in a way that feels really bankrupt and it's clever she's it's political but it's also incredibly emotional she writes about her childhood and her mother making um dal for her and 
displacement and I don't know it's it's very elegant it's not very long um she gets into what nourishment means as well as being beyond sustenance and actually being intellectual and spiritual and emotional as well and the ways that we can starve ourselves of these things without meaning to and how that doesn't lead to a happy life right ultimately you need to be nourished in as many ways as possible and also it has an incredibly beautiful cover, which I'm a sucker for. <laughs> it's a beautiful marigold yellow and it's got a blue and white plate design on it. And it, it looks hospitable, if you know what I mean. So, I w- yeah, I recommend it very highly. It's just a lovely, like, little intellectual and emotional reset thing to read. Great. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. I saw her speak and I she has a very warm presence as well. Uh, I can so, imagine that from yeah. her writing. That's good to hear. I also just really want to eat her mother's doll now as well. <laughs> it sounds so tasty. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, what's your recommendation? I have recently finished reading um, two biographies of Tolstoy, one by Henri Troyat and then the other by A.N. Wilson. And I like to read more than one biography if I'm really interested in the subject. And I love Tolstoy so much that the reason that I read two was to to get two different viewpoints because you understand when you're reading a biography that you're actually seeing the subject somewhat through the eyes of the biographer naturally. And Triad's biography was, um, it was like reading a novel. It was just so lush with so many details. And it was almost like reading Tolstoy himself, except not, of course, but it was lovely in a very novelistic kind of way. And it was just a fabulous read. I, I was just captivated by it. And I also felt that he was not judgmental of Tolstoy or his wife, Sophia. And and he was just revealing. He was just saying, here's what they did. Here's what she did. Here's what he did. Here's what this other fellow did, you know, toward the end of their lives, which is obviously such a sad period. But I just thought that was really, really wonderful. And Anne Wilson's biography um, was a little more astringent and more of like a biography, whereas the first one was like a novel. I'm not surprised to hear you're a big fan of Tolstoy, another really character-driven writer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And also, I'm not surprised to hear that you would read more than one biography because you have a keen sense of the different ways that we encounter character. (laughs) Octavia's a big War and Peace fan. I'm a huge War and Peace fan. I've read that book many times and it's it's wonderful to go back to. an amazing book to go back to. Yeah. Yeah, and you do sound, I mean, sometimes and I worry that you sound like a bit of a wanker saying I've read War and Peace more than once. No, I have but to be careful about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? I know what you mean. <laughs> I also remember one time with my former in-laws, I was reading it by the, we were um, at some Caribbean resort, and I was reading War and Peace, and they were like embarrassed that I was sitting by the pool reading War and Peace. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? Put a paper cover of it? You know, and they kind of wanted me to, you could tell. <laughs> but it was just so, you know, they, but anyway. Yeah, yeah you have to hide it in a magazine. How, <laughs> how often you tell people you've read that. <laughs> I am going to recommend Hateship, Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage by Alice Munro, which um, I've been meaning to read Alice Munro for ages. And she's, you know, she's widely regarded as one of the best short story writers in the world but somehow I just never actually read a single one of her stories and then the other day I was on like Twitter or Instagram or something and the New Yorker advertised me one of her stories called What is Remembered which is about this woman who has this very brief affair very early on in her marriage and then ends up staying with her husband and sort of how that affair changes her life in a way that you wouldn't really expect and I I clicked into the story from this ad I mean this is Mm -hmm. shows 
maybe something bad about my mind. I don't know. But I don't mind the New Yorker advertising to me. Anyway, clicked into the story, read it immediately on my phone. You know, it yeah. just it just scrolls through it on my phone and then immediately went and just bought the book at the, right. at the shop because right. I was like, this woman is a genius. Yeah. She, is. she really is. And, she is. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole collection really confirms that. Yeah. She's so good on, on character, on psychology, on like twists that shouldn't be twists, but somehow are twists. It's also quite dark in a way that I didn't necessarily expect. Mm-hmm. And you can see the influence of people like Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm so in love with her and now I just want to read all of her stories. Right. And also a really weird thing happened, I think yesterday or the day before, where this rumor circulated on Twitter that she died and no. everyone was retweeting it. And, and I, I became incredibly bereft. And then it turns out it was this weird, like copycat account that had pretended <gasps> to be oh her publisher. God. The internet is so I know. Up. And oh. it was, and, but I, so it was a very strange oh, yeah. feeling to be relieved that she is alive yeah. and well but she's alive and well and i'm yeah. and i'm very glad right. for right. it so um right. so Alice Monroe is is great guys she is <laughs> she has such authority on that page she really yes yeah. exactly that's, that's yeah. a perfect way to put it yeah. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Elizabeth Strout, Paula at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us via email, litfriction at gmail.com. Please rate, review, subscribe. It really helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our year in review mini-sode. We're already putting together our lists of our favorite books. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.